And for those of you uh, who are maybe joining us online, you're joining us over at the Cactus Campus at, at, uh, at Mountain Valley, at, um, uh, at the chapel here on our, on our campus, over in the venue, my, my friend Rustin, who I talked to this week, is preaching. I've known Rustin since he was in the fourth grade, uh, so we've walked a lot of roads together, uh, some of them good, some of them bad, but uh, uh, no matter where you're joining us this morning, uh, tuning in, welcome, welcome to Scottsdale Bible Church here in the Worship Center. My name is Lucas. Like Neil said, I pastor a church called Bayview Glen Church in Toronto, Canada. Uh, Toronto's one of the most multi-ethnic cities in the world. In fact, um, uh, the demographics show that Toronto is the most multi-ethnic city in the world. So between 1,000 and 1,200 adults would show up for corporate worship at our church on a Sunday, and we would have over 110 nationalities represented in those 1,000 adults or so. We would have over 60 mother tongues represented, and it is a fantastic place to be. Uh, we, we absolutely love it there, and, and again, it does feel like coming home here. I spent six wonderful years on staff here at Scottsdale Bible. Uh, I actually was on staff for eight years, but two of them were a little shaky, but six wonderful years. And uh, my wife and I actually celebrated 10 years of marriage uh, this year. So that was fun and cool. And thanks. Yeah. I told my father-in-law last night that he owes me 20 bucks uh, because, because the over-under was nine and I bet over. So um, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Nope. Nobody thought my wife would make it this long. Um, We've been in Toronto now for almost three years. September will be three years for us. We adopted a little girl in August of 2014. And uh, just this last year, at the end of, at the end of last year, um, we got a text from birth mom and said, hey, uh, I'm pregnant again. Uh, same birth dad. So we will be adopting a full biological sibling of our little girl. Uh, July 19 is when the C-section is scheduled. So we're excited about that. Uh, she, yeah, thanks. <clears throat> Every time you clap, it cuts into my sermon time, so we can, um, totally kidding, I'm totally kidding. Um, the C-section is scheduled for July 19, but, uh, but likely she'll go early, is what we think. So if I get a text while I'm preaching here, then Neil is on. So, uh, and I will, I will just leave and not feel bad. I might not even say goodbye. So, um, so thanks for continuing to pray for us. Thanks for continuing to pray for Amy and for, um, for Kaya, our little girl, and for uh, this new little girl on the way. I didn't, I didn't want boys. They're too complicated. Girls are a lot, you know, tutus and, and princesses and stuff. It's, that's more my wheelhouse. So um, <laughs> have you ever heard this word used in church, uh, spiritual disciplines? You ever heard that word used around church at all, church people? Uh, for those of you who are not church people, and if you're not a church person, that's okay. This word spiritual disciplines is kind of a general term that refers to a set of life habits that help us engage in relationship with God. So spiritual disciplines could include things like regular Bible study or regular prayer time, or if you're really serious, times of solitude or times of silence. And the early church fathers, all the way up through modern authors like Dallas Willard and Don Whitney, understand that spiritual habits, spiritual practices, spiritual disciplines, now listen close, are the utensils that we use to partake that is the banquet that is God himself. They're, they're kind of the fork and knife that we come equipped with to partake in the banquet that is God himself. The bummer is that there are a lot of people, especially church people, unfortunately, that abuse this word or misunderstand this word. And if you want to know if somebody misunderstands this word spiritual disciplines, you can hear it in the way that they talk about spiritual disciplines. They see Bible study as compulsory or obligatory. They see prayer as a chore. For them, 
uh, you know, Bible study and prayer are chores. Spiritual discipline, spiritual habits are chores. They're a burden. In short, they believe that following Jesus is a difficult yoke and a heavy burden. But get this, Jesus says quite the opposite in Matthew chapter 11, doesn't he? Jesus says this, he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you, say that word with me, rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is, and my burden is. In other words, following Jesus on a daily basis brings life and freedom and joy. It should not make you feel like a 14-year-old kid who's forced to mow the lawn on a Saturday. So here's what I wanna do for the next two weeks. I wanna talk about spiritual disciplines, but I wanna do so in a little bit of a different way. I wanna take a little bit of a different spin on this. And I wanna offer you first a metaphor for spiritual disciplines, a metaphor for spiritual disciplines that has been especially instructive and freeing and life-giving for me in my own spiritual journey. And I hope it is for you as well. And then the second thing I want to do is offer you one specific spiritual discipline, both this week and next week. We'll talk about one this week, talk about one next week that you may be unfamiliar with. You may have never practiced before, but they're really, really easy. And if you can incorporate these habits into your life, they will help you partake in the banquet that is the living God. Does that sound good? Great. If it doesn't sound good, I don't have anything else. So um, let's pray. God, we invite you to speak this morning as we talk about spiritual disciplines, spiritual habits and practices. God, teach us what it means to incorporate these kind of rhythms and habits into our own life rhythms and habits. God, just as Jamie prayed for me last night before I preached, that today would be your words to your people so that they could experience your truth. God, any of my opinions, any of my kind of preconceptions, I ask that those would fall on deaf ears today and that your voice would be the only one that's heard in this place. Spirit of God, we invite you to move and speak in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, the night before Jesus was crucified, he spent the evening with his disciples having Passover meal. Uh, soon the Holy Spirit would inhabit the disciples and their relationship with Jesus would become a purely spiritual encounter. And Jesus knew that cultivating spiritual life in a world that was fixated on physical life would be challenging to say the very least. So he wanted to give his disciples some final instructions with regard to engaging with God in spirit. So after Jesus and his disciples left the room where they celebrated Passover, they walked east outside of Jerusalem city gate and then north toward the garden of Gethsemane. And that journey would have taken them through countless vineyards. And while they walked past grapevine after grapevine, Jesus began to unfold a metaphor, a picture in order to help his disciples understand what spiritual life would look like. Jesus encouraged his disciples this way. You can look up here on the screen. He said, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. The metaphor that Jesus uses here is multi-layered, so we're gonna unpack it piece by piece and we're gonna begin with the branches. What's the sole purpose of a branch? Well, Jesus actually repeated it three times here. He says, bear fruit, bear fruit, and then bear more fruit. That's the only purpose of a branch, 
to bear fruit. What we need to know about a branch is that its only purpose is to bear fruit. So we're going to solidify this in our minds and hearts today. And uh, campus, even if you're other campuses, even if you're listening online, we're all going to repeat these together. And so I need you to repeat after me. Branches bear fruit. Man, you sound great. No one, if the, no one cares if the branch looks bad. No one cares if the branch smells bad. No one cares if the branch is the wrong color. We only care if the branch produces fruit because if the branch produces fruit, everybody's happy. That's the branch's only job, just to bear fruit. But the branch doesn't live on its own. You understand that, right? The vine gives life to the branches. So repeat after me, the vine gives life. If a branch remains connected to the vine, it will continue to bear fruit. Disconnect the branch from the vine and it will not survive, much less yield fruit because the vine gives life. And finally, the vine dresser prunes. Say that with me. The vine dresser prunes. He cares for the branches such that they continue to draw life from the vine and ultimately achieve their purpose, which is to bear fruit. Now listen close. This is spiritual life. We are like a branch that is connected to a vine. And just as the branch's job is to bear fruit, the Christ follower's job is to bear the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, just to name a few. So you don't need to write these things down, but just to make sure we understand what Jesus is getting at, say this with me. I am a branch. My job is to bear fruit. And Jesus says that he is our vine. He's our nourishment. He's our life. And in order to bear fruit, we must stay connected with him. So say this with me. Jesus is the vine and he gives me life. And I see that some of you are not repeating after me and that's okay. You might be over it already, but we only have one more to go. So are we ready to do one more? Just one more. Come on now. All right, here we go. The father is the vine dresser. He prunes me so that I bear fruit. We have a heavenly vine dresser that cultivates environments and situations in our life that cause us to yield fruit because that's his goal and that's our job. But here's the question. How does the vine dresser do that? What tactics and methods does the vine dresser employ in order to care for his branches? Well, the answer is in two of the original Greek words that Jesus uses in John chapter 15. Look back up here at the passage. First, he says that the vine dresser takes away branches. He takes them away. In the original Greek, that word is iro, and it can be translated take away or lift up or pick up. The second word that Jesus uses, he says, the vine dresser prunes. And in the original Greek, that word is kathairo, and it, and it can be translated as cleanse. And Jesus tells us that the heavenly vine dresser lifts us up, is the first one, takes away, and cleanses us so that we bear fruit. Why? Because grapevines are climbing vines. They are meant to grow up. When they grow along the ground, they're prone to disease and insect infestation and trampling. And if a grapevine's branch grows along the ground, it certainly will not survive and it most definitely will not bear the quantity and quality of fruit that it could. So the vine dresser would go through his vineyard and lift his branches up, or to put it the way Jesus put it, take away the jeopardized branch from the ground 
cleanse it, and then elevate it in order to protect it and expose it to the sun that it so desperately needed. And when the vine dresser lifted his branches away from the ground, he would connect them to a trellis. He'd connect them to a trellis. A trellis is simply an architectural structure that is designed to support climbing plants like vines. And I know that Jesus doesn't explicitly mention a trellis in John 15, but his word picture implies the existence of a support structure because when the vine dresser lifted a branch away from the ground, he would have attached it to a trellis. In fact, history buffs in the room, just so you know, trellises predate Jesus by 2,000 years. And trellises were a critical part of viticulture in first century Palestine. So the vineyard that Jesus and his disciples would have been walking through as they walked north toward the Garden of Gethsemane would have been lined with trellises, support structures that allowed climbing vines to climb, that kept the branches elevated once the vine dresser cleansed them and lifted them away from the ground. Now listen, in the same way, our heavenly vine dresser sometimes sees that his branches are growing along the ground. And we're not bearing the quantity and quality of fruit that we could because we're susceptible to disease and insect infestation and trampling down there. So he gently lifts us up and cleans us off. And while a literal vine dresser would attach his branches to a literal trellis, we might ask ourselves, what does our heavenly vine dresser lift his branches to? What support structure do we cling to in order to grow strong and bear fruit? Now, this is where spiritual disciplines come in. I would submit to you this morning that we can engage in life habits, life practices, as the early church fathers would say, a rule of life, dare I say even disciplines, that construct for us a sort of spiritual support structure, a spiritual trellis that allow us to climb, grow, remain lifted up, and most importantly, bear more fruit. Just as a branch needs a trellis as support, we need a spiritual support structure in the form of spiritual habits. So this is where we begin today. In seeing spiritual habits like Bible study and prayer, not as chores that we do because God asked us to do good deeds so we can impress him, because that's not true. Rather, we see those habits as interconnected pieces that form a support structure onto which our spiritual life can cling. But before we go any further, I, I want to make sure that we understand this, that the vine dresser doesn't care how pretty your trellis is. The vine dresser doesn't care how pretty your trellis is. You may walk into a garden in modern times and you may see a very ornate and very beautiful trellis and they're great, but you understand that a viticulturist, someone who's trying to grow grapes and get his branches to bear fruit, does not care how pretty that trellis is. They need the trellis to do a job. In other words, the trellis is functional, not aesthetic. So let's import this into spiritual terms. Listen close. Your heavenly father is not interested in helping you develop a bunch of spiritual habits like prayer and Bible study that look pretty on the outside, but don't serve a purpose. I want to say that again because I think that some of you need to hear that this morning. Your heavenly father is not interested 
even a little bit, zero, zilch, nada, nil, nothing, not even a little bit interested in helping you develop a bunch of spiritual practices like prayer and Bible study so that you look pretty on the outside, but they don't help you bear fruit. He's a vine dresser. He's interested in fruit. The trellis isn't there to look pretty. It's there to help everyone accomplish their goal, which is more fruit. If you're wondering where Jesus affirms this principle, he does in Matthew chapter six, when he talks about the spiritual habit that we're gonna be talking about today, Jesus says, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites for they disfigure their face fasting that their face or disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Jesus is talking to a group of hyper-religious hypocrites that were very concerned about external appearances. So they engaged in spiritual habits in order to make themselves look good. They even made a spectacle of those things by disfiguring their faces. To use our metaphor, they were very, very concerned about a pretty spiritual trellis, but they were not at all concerned about bearing spiritual fruit. But remember, the vine dresser doesn't care how pretty your trellis is. He cares if the trellis helps the branches bear more fruit. So look what Jesus says to those religious hypocrites in that next sentence. And, and this is rough, actually. He says, truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. In other words, if you aim for a pretty spiritual trellis, a pretty trellis is all you're going to get. You may look good now, but you will fail at the fundamental goal that God has called you to, which is to bear fruit that will last. The vine dresser doesn't care how pretty your trellis is. The vine dresser uses a trellis as a support structure to help his branches bear fruit. For some of you, I would like to extend an invitation to you this morning to be free of that heavy yoke of slavery that you've put on your own shoulders that you call spiritual habits or spiritual disciplines. You might call them quiet times. You might call them devotions. You're super excited about a bunch of knowledge in the Bible and you chalk up the time that you pray. I pray for 30 minutes today, 45 minutes today, an hour today. And nobody's, nobody's mad at you for praying for an hour, but if it feels like a chore, if it feels like an obligation, if you're concerned about how it looks on the outside, then you're not achieving the goal that God has called you to. I want to invite you this morning to the easy yoke that is discipleship in the school of Jesus. Be free of the yoke of slavery that you've put on your shoulders. Jesus reminds us that spiritual habits are not there because they have intrinsic value. They're not there to make us look good and they certainly don't impress God. Do you know that God's already impressed with you? Did you know that? You know why? Not because you did anything awesome. Like he doesn't look down on us and go, wow, they are really pretty cool. I, that idea he just had, I've never even thought of that before. God doesn't think that. You know why he's impressed with you? Because he sees you through Jesus. He sees you as a son or daughter adopted into his kingdom. There's nothing you can do to impress him. He's already infinitely impressed with you because of Jesus. So as we incorporate these spiritual habits, remember that God's not concerned about that. His desire is to help us bear fruit and a spiritual support structure can help us do that. So we've kind of established this general principle, this general guiding principle for the purpose of spiritual disciplines. Now I wanna talk about one particular spiritual habit that we can incorporate into our life, the one that Jesus just mentioned in Matthew chapter six, verse 16, and that's fasting. And then everybody's favorite sermon topic, fasting. It's like, hey, there's a guest speaker at Scottsdale Bible Church this weekend. He's talking about fasting. We should go. Like nobody ever says that. I should have, I should have done something different. I should have done sex or, <laughs> or like the end times. 
Like everybody likes that one. Will there be sex in the end times? That's another good one. Um, that always draws a crowd. Fasting is not one of those series. Throughout scripture, individuals go without food for a particular period of time, or they go without a certain type of food or certain types of food for a period of time in order to devote themselves to prayer. This happens all the time in scripture. The nation of Israel did it as a corporate body. Old Testament prophets like Elijah and Daniel did it. Even Jesus did it. But there's a modern Bible scholar, a guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones. He writes this. He said, fasting should really be made to include abstinence from anything which is legitimate in and of itself for the sake of some spiritual purpose. I want to read that to you again because it's critical. Fasting should really be made to include abstinence from anything which is legitimate in and of itself for the sake of some special spiritual purpose. In other words, fasting does not necessarily mean we fast from food. We can abstain from anything for the sake of prayer. Here's what Martin Lloyd-Jones is saying to us. He's saying fasting isn't about food. Fasting is about appetite. Fasting isn't about food. Fasting is about appetite. Throughout Scripture, individuals fast for any number of reasons. They fast to seek God's direction. They fast to seek God's face or his favor. They fast in repentance. They fast in mourning. But in every case, every single one, there's a common thread that runs through every biblical fast. It's always about appetite. Why? Because you and I were born with a fundamental appetite for the divine a thirst that can only be quenched by our creator God. But you and I have a tendency to satiate that thirst or satisfy that hunger with things that aren't God. Like they're not necessarily bad things. In fact, they can be gifts from God. But when we try to fill our spiritual bellies with something that isn't God himself, we're satisfied only for a time and we aren't really nourished. There's a theologian named Cornelius Plantinga. He writes this. He says, a person's appetites are linked. A person's appetites are linked. Full stomachs and jaded palates take the edge off of our hunger and thirst for righteousness. They spoil the appetite for God. I love that. In other words, Plantinga is saying, indulgence in anything that isn't God tends to spoil our appetite for God. And we've got plenty of biblical examples of God followers and God seekers who chose not to satisfy their hunger for God with anything that wasn't God himself. And in that choice, they define fasting for us. The removal or abstinence from some element of this temporary life that tends to inappropriately cause us to feel satisfied in something other than God. The temporary abstinence from some tempor temporary abstinence or removal of an element of this life that tends to spoil our appetite for God. It causes us to feel satisfied in something other than God. And the result of fasting is that our appetite for God is fueled. Let me give you an example. You ever been on like a, like a long road trip, like a real long road trip? Throw your hand up if you have. Over in the chapel, Mount Valley. Yeah, good, good. Uh, and do you do the same thing that I do when you go on a long road trip? You make, you make a pit stop beforehand at like a Circle K or 7-Eleven or like if you have a family like my brother does, like a Costco, you know, because they have five children and they got to have like a truck full. Like they tow a trailer from Costco. That's what they do, my brother's family. 
And, and what are you looking for in, when it comes to snacks before you go on your long road trip? Healthy stuff, right? Every time. Like I, like I, want, some, I want some almonds. I want, I want some fruit, some quinoa. Maybe I can get some quinoa. No, no. Funyuns and, and bugles. You know bugles? The little, the little things that look like a cornucopia and you put them on your fingers. Do you do that like I do and you eat them off your fingers? Admit it, you do it, don't you? Yeah. Red Bull, I love Red Bull when I'm on road trips. Uh, more Funyuns, I love more Funyuns. Uh, candy bars, but I don't buy the big candy bars. I buy the little snack size ones because then you can justify it, you know what I mean? Because it's just little ones. It's just, it's not like a whole candy bar and you eat the equivalent of like five candy bars, but you tell yourself, it was probably like a quarter of a Snickers I had. And there's like 50 wrappers all around your car. And at the end of that road trip, when you've been shoving beef jerky and candy corn down the hatch, it stops your hunger, doesn't it? It takes the edge off your hunger, but it does not nourish your body. So what happens at the end of that road trip is you get out of the car and you look at your family, you look at your friends or whatever, and you go, I need some real food, don't you? You ever said that before? I need veggies, I need salad, I need some protein, I need something. This is fasting. It's choosing not to feed our appetite for God with spiritual junk food so that we increase our appetite for God himself. And we are driven to the banquet table that is his very presence where we will be eternally satisfied. One preacher says it this way. He says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Fasting is a way to stop satisfying ourselves with other things and seek satisfaction in God himself. You see, fasting isn't about food. Fasting is about your appetite. So here's the thing, no matter where you are spiritually, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, if you're kind of seeking God, if you're just coming back to faith, if you still have questions about God, no matter where you're at, fasting, rightly understood as part of a spiritual trellis, can stoke your appetite for God. It can be a helpful habit. So here's what I wanna do to close. I, I wanna encourage you to engage in a fast. I wanna encourage you to engage in a 40-day fast, 40 days. No, nobody panic. <laughs> Some of you are going, oh my gosh, this guy is nuts. We'll talk about 40 days, all right? So before Jesus was tempted by Satan, he actually fasted for 40 days. And I figure if it's good enough for him, it should be good enough for us. So I wanna encourage you to engage in a fast in order to seek the face of God. Choose not to satisfy your hunger for God with things that aren't God. Choose to go without so that you might increase your appetite for God himself. And I wanna offer a couple of suggestions. In fact, I wanna offer 10 suggestions to you. There's all kinds of different things that we can fast from. We're gonna talk about what those are. And as you see these pop up on the screen beside me, I would encourage you, if one of them kind of, you know, in the back of your mind or in your heart, you think, yeah, that's it, just jot it down, just jot it down. And I would encourage you to pick one and we'll talk about what it means to fast from that thing for 40 days, okay? One thing you can fast from is food. You can fast from food. Two caveats really quickly. If you struggle with uh, any, if you struggle with food, if you struggle with eating disorders or anything, don't choose food. And I'm, in all seriousness, do not choose food. There are gonna be nine other suggestions of things up here that you can choose to fast from. If, if, if you struggle with an eating disorder in the, in the past or even presently, do not choose food. And, and my other hunch is this, that you could, you know, fasting for, from food totally for 40 days is probably not a great idea for most of us in the room, right? But what you can do is say for the next 40 days, every Friday, I'm gonna fast from lunch. 
Or for the next 40 days, every Saturday from sunup to sundown, I'm going to fast. Neil told me the other day that he fasts from coffee when he goes to bed, and then he breaks his fast immediately when he wakes up in the morning. So, (laughs) Neil, very very spiritual man, very spiritual man, Neil is. You could say, uh, somebody, actually, I hate to call Chad out, the drummer, he said, you know, I'm going to fast from sugar for the next 40 days. And he said, and I said, I'm glad I live in Toronto because I don't want to be around you when you're not on sugar. Uh, But he's going to do that. He's going to fast from sugar. You could fast from, you fast from wheat. You can fast from dessert. You can fast from any different types of things in order to drive your appetite for God. You could fast from media, from TV, from internet, that kind of stuff. Some of you are going, oh man, I got to have internet at work. Yeah, but do you have to have it at home? You could fast from media. You could fast from social media. Social media, things like Instagram, the, the Twitter, tweet, tweet, what is that one? FaceSpace, FaceSpace is one, right? Was it Facebook? The Facebook, is it the Facebook? It's the Facebook, isn't it? I don't have those things. Some of you, I actually troll your, a lot of you, I troll your Instagram accounts, by the way, and you should probably give up social media altogether. Don't fast from it, just be done with it, because uh, you're embarrassing yourself and your family. But that's beside the point. That's my only, sorry. It's been, it's been fun preaching here. Um, my, my wife actually fasted from Instagram over Lent. I fasted from something else. She fasted from Instagram over Lent. She said it was a great thing. It drove her appetite for God, stoked her appetite for God. You could fast from hobbies. If you've got a hobby that you, that you love that you might fast from. In fact, if you're a golfer, uh, now is a great time to fast from golf uh, because it's like 170 outside. So you could fast from shopping. I heard a couple of people, oh, ew, ooh. And a couple of people are nudging their spouse, you know, that's you, you should fast from shopping forever. Um, you can fast from alcohol. I have a friend in, uh, in the greater Toronto area. He's a physician, a very, very brilliant man. He fasted uh, from alcohol over Lent for 40 days. So it was the best spiritual decision he ever made. Absolutely stoked his appetite for God. He loved it. You could fast from planning. Now, for 90, 95% of you in the room, you're like, I have no idea what that means, but there are about five or 10% of you that are planners, and you're like, oh my gosh, how does he know? (laughs) How does he know that I need to fast from planning? Because what happens is when you have an appetite for the divine, when you have an appetite for God, what you run to is planning. You plan your next vacation, you plan pickup times for your kids, you do financial planning, you plan your day, plan your week, plan your month. I'm of the opinion that if you're doing so much in a day, you can't write it all on your hand. You're probably doing too much. But some of you are planners. Some of you are planners. And you need to fast from planning. You could fast from your cell phone. Now, that's just crazy talk is what that is. <laughs> do, you remember, do, you remember when, do you remember when we used to not have cell phones? Like, what, what, how, what did we do? You know, how did we call each other when a T-Rex was in the area? You know, um, we didn't. We couldn't communicate. Smoke signals and things. Do you remember rotary phones? And you remember, like, if you, like, you, you show how much you love somebody if they had multiple nines in their phone number and you were like, you know what? I'm going to call them. Because a nine took like an hour to dial, you know? All the way around. You had and if you didn't like the person, you get like halfway through the number. It's like, no, that's, I don't need to talk to them. That's, it's just taking too long. 
You could fast from your cell phone because some of you have an appetite for the divine and the edge is taken off of that hunger for him because you run to your cell phone. You could fast from sports. Good news is no NFL right now, NBA's over. If you do a 40 day fast from sports, you'll still catch the World Series. Hockey will get started up, you'll be fine. It's fast from sports. You could fast from caffeine. You could fast from caffeine. Some of you, here's, here's the deal. You're a whole lot more fun to be around when you have caffeine. So please choose one of the other nine of these things just for our sake, because we like you on caffeine and we don't like you not on caffeine. We love you, but caffeine is really great for you. So choose one of the other nine. Look, look up here, here's the thing. You understand that none of these are bad things, right? These are all morally neutral things. Like the Bible doesn't say that any of those things are bad. It says moderation, it says don't get drunk on wine, but it doesn't say these things are bad things. They're not sin. What we're saying is they are simply things that we run to in order to satisfy our appetite, but they will never nourish our soul. What we're saying is, hey, I wanna experience more of God. I wanna feed my hunger for the divine. So I'm gonna voluntarily abstain from one of those things for 40 days in different spurts and different times, however you choose to do that in order to seek his face. So some of you might be wondering, man, there's a bunch up there I could fast from. Here, here, here would be my question to you in terms of just choosing one of those things. What's your go-to? What's your go-to? Here's what I mean by go-to. At the end of a long day, when you're stressed, when you're tired, at the end of a long week, what's your go-to? If, you, if you're like, man, I just had a long day at work, it's been 12 hours, my kids are running like crazy, finally put the kids down and you're like, man, I just need to have a couple beers and a banana nut muffin. Don't lie, you know you do it. Lying in church is wrong. Then that's probably your go-to. Or if you get to the end of a long week and you're like, man, I just want to veg out and watch the D-backs. There it is, right there, right there. Or if you get to the end of a long week or long day, it's like, man, I just want to golf nine holes. There it is. If you're stressed out and you're like, man, I just need to run to, I, just, I need a new pair of Jimmy Choo's. If, you know, if you know what Jimmy Choo's are, you should probably fast from that. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> what's your go-to? What's, what's the place you run to when you're tired, when you're stressed? Stop running there just for a period of time and feed your appetite for God. We're going to conclude this way. In Jesus' admonition to the Pharisees in Matthew 6, verse 16, that we just read a minute ago, it's very interesting the way he begins. He begins this way. He says, and when you fast. And when you fast. I mean, Jesus expects that they fast. He knows that they fast. But you understand he's not commanding fasting here. He's not saying fast, you should fast. You know, the Bible actually never commands fasting, not one time. There's nowhere in scripture that the Bible commands fasting. There is, however, an expectation on God's part that we just might desire to be satisfied in what our soul truly longs for. So God's not heavy handed here. He's not saying you need to do this. It's almost as if he's saying to us, do you wanna be satisfied in the depths of your soul? Do you want to drink from the well that will never leave you thirsty again? One way to do that is to stop running to those other wells. I'm not commanding you to do this. I'm just telling you, you will never be satisfied there. So stop feeding your appetite for those things and feed your appetite for me. That's why Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they, for they will 
be filled. As we conclude our time of worship here in the worship center and across our campuses, we're going to receive what's called the elder fund offering. I'm going to pray and then turn it over to the campus pastors and all of our venues, and then uh, we're going to sing one more song and give to the elder fund offering. Would you pray with me? God, we love you and we praise you and we confess and claim and own together that our appetite for you will never be satiated. It will never go away. It will never be met by anything that isn't you. So God, teach us to add to our spiritual trellis, to add something kind of as part of our spiritual support structure that we can cling to as we grow a regular habit of fasting so that we learn not to run to other things to feed our appetite for the divine. God, for those who uh, would be so bold as to choose to do a 40-day fast, I ask that you would reward their obedience, reward their faithfulness, God, with your presence your hope, the gift that is your very life in their life. Thank you, O oh God, for inviting us to partake in the banquet. And thank you for giving us utensils that we can use when we sit down and commune with you. In Christ's name, the people of God together said, amen. Amen.